fourth watch starts now. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Paul on The Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be a vast excursion of spiritual antiquity as we'll be digging up the ancient Semitic biblical understandings of the unseen realm and the hierarchy of beings and creatures, both heavenly and demonic. This will be both a challenging and edifying discussion, so be sure to grab a pen and paper because you'll definitely want to take some notes. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the 4th Watch Radio Network, I call this episode Decoding the Unseen Realm, God, Gods, Angels, and Demons, with special guests... Dr. Michael Heiser. Well, it's Thursday again, and you know what time it is, ladies and gentlemen. And wow, do we have a show for you tonight. But first, just a quick update for everybody. We're still moving forward with the ministry fundraising, but have quite a ways to go. Now, it's not a bad thing, folks, because it's my prayer that it's God's perfect timing and provision to be made on his timeline, not on mine. And the Lord knows exactly what we need in order to launch, and He also knows exactly how He is going to provide it. Amen? And we always want to operate within God's perfect will and His perfect time. I sincerely thank everyone who's been so sensitive and loving to give to help further the good fight, and I pray that the Lord would multiply your gifts back unto each of you. And for those of you who are still interested in giving and feeling led to get involved, Head on over to fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number four, T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you can easily give by clicking the PayPal donate button on the right side of the screen. And ladies and gentlemen, your gifts are much appreciated in helping reach our equipment needs at this time. Now, one last quick note, I am repeatedly getting blocked by Facebook and I can't comment on your comments and your post where I'm being tagged. Uh, I'm actually being revoked from sharing the fourth watch and groups over and over and I'm not blowing it up. I'm not even over posting. Uh, what's happening here? I think people are flagging the posts. I think there's people in the groups that are flagging the posts because they don't like them or they're just trying to silence the truth. But the other thing is, I'm losing more than just that. I'm losing other Facebook privileges, as they call them, and it's not really a big deal because I really don't have too much time for Facebook anyways, but I want everyone to understand I'm not intentionally not replying to your comments. Uh, It's nothing personal. I really have no control over this, but I also want everyone to start thinking about something. I want everyone to get into the practice of just heading over to listen to my shows without me having to post them in the groups. There's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m., Lord willing, (laughs) and it's posted on the 4th Watch Spreaker page, which is S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com. You can just search the 4th Watch, follow us on there, you'll get updates. 
you can also go to the Fourth Watch Blogspot page, which we've already given the address earlier, uh, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. You could go listen on the YouTube channel, which is Justin Fall. You can subscribe there. You can also subscribe for auto-download in iTunes or any of the other podcast apps, also on my personal Facebook wall. Or you can easily just download the Fourth Watch Radio app for your smartphones or mobile devices. It's totally free. So if you want the app, just search Justin Fall, J-U-S-T-E-N-F-A-U-L-L in your app stores for Apple and Android. And I just have a feeling that Facebook is trending into a direction that's going to be making it harder and harder for real Christians to be sharing the truth, whether it be broadcasting, whether it be articles. I'm just, I had this feeling that we won't have Facebook as a resource too much longer into the future. So I just really want us to get into the habit of not relying on Facebook. So want to get that out of the way. And uh, wow, we have got a heavy show for you tonight as we'll be discussing the existence of God, the gods, of course, fallen angels and devils, the watchers, demons, and of course, the creatures of heaven as well. There are so many misconceptions surrounding modern teachings on these subjects, so who better to break these down than a biblical scholar and a Semitic language expert? So tonight we're joined by Dr. Michael Heiser, and not only is Michael a scholar and a Semitic languages expert, but he's also an acclaimed author who's published many works, including The Unseen Realm and Supernatural. So his books are excellent resources for the Christian researcher, and Michael's website is drmsh.com, which is another amazing resource in and of itself. So now without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome on Dr. Michael Heiser. Michael, welcome to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? Very good. Hey, thanks for having me on. I got to tell you, it was it was interesting how I found out about your work. Um, I had some people contact me and they said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy? And I said, <laughs> and I'm like, well, this guy has a name. No, but uh, I had heard your name and I realized that we were connected on Facebook. And so I looked into your book, The Unseen Realm. So after looking into your work, I definitely wanted to have you on the show to talk about The Unseen Realm. And you also blog. You've got some amazing topics on your website, uh, which is drmsh.com. Thank you for getting that correct. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine how some people could butcher that. Yeah, well, it, it's a redirect, and I and I used to have my name, but everybody kept misspelling it, so it's like I figured this was so simple, but people still miss it. So with that said, Michael, tell us about your book. Tell us about The Unseen Realm. Well, I, The Unseen Realm, you know, really is the product of uh, the last 15 years of my life, it, it, and it really, the, the genesis of it really began when I was in graduate school, and and your listeners should should know, especially if they're not believers, that one of the things that, that sets me apart, and I, I don't... This isn't a, a self-aggrandizing sort of thing. It's just true. Uh, one of the things that sets me apart is the fact that I, I do have a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages. Uh, I don't make things up. I, I insist upon uh, taking people back to primary texts uh, in their own context. And, and, and the Unseen Realm is really a lot about that. And it began while I was at Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin in, in Madison. Uh, in the Hebrew department there. And uh, before church one day, uh, I was you know, killing some time with a friend who was also in the Hebrew department. And I don't remember what the conversation was about, but I'll never forget the way it ended. And uh, you know, a friend of mine just handed me, he had his Hebrew Bible with him, handed me his Hebrew Bible. It was open to Psalm 82. And 
he said, you need to read that. And, you know, look, I, I taught on the college level for five years. I had two master's degrees. You know, what do you mean I need to read that? So I read it. And, you know, if, if anybody has not read Psalm 82, one, uh, even in English, but in, in Hebrew, it's especially striking. You know, Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. God stands in the midst of his divine counsel. And then we have, you know, Elohim, or Bekerav Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of the gods, he passes judgment. And I had never read it in Hebrew before. And it, it, I don't, I don't remember a word of the sermon. <laughs> I don't know what happened uh, the, the rest of the time. But you look at that and it's like, well, that, but that just sounds like a pantheon, <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, it, it kind of does sound like a pantheon, doesn't it? And that became the object, sort of a, 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 a bit of an obsession. It, it eventually morphed into the, the centerpiece of my dissertation. And while I was in the midst of, you know, trying to figure this out, because it's like, hey, surely Jesus knew the passage, and he did. You know, he quoted Psalm 82 and John 10. Surely the apostles knew this passage. You know, Paul, of course, was a highly trained, you know, scholar for his day. And this can't be anything new. So why haven't I heard of this? And why do, why do translations and commentators in the evangelical orbit deliberately seek to obscure the very plain reading of the text? And as I got into it, and really, it, it, it just set me on fire because it, 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 it restored, and here I am in grad school, you're supposed to be discovering lots of things, and you do, but, but as a believer, it really restored the, the thrill of discovery because I was having to rethink so many things. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but Psalm 82, the divine counsel, the unseen realm, as I refer to it in the, in the t- book title, is not a peripheral subject of biblical theology. It is actually a centerpiece of biblical theology. And so many things extend from God's activity and relationship with his heavenly host and the vocabulary that, that, that he uses for them, also used as, for Christians. That's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. Uh, so many of the, of the threads of salvation history uh, wind their way through episodes that involve, you know, what we loosely refer to as angels, but other Elohim, uh, the Watchers, you know, all th- these figures that we get when we, when we get into serious Bible study, we start to discover these terms, and it, it it was just reorienting. And I had the thought, and here's where Unseen Realm was born. I had the thought, you know, it's just not right that I should, be, I should have to go to graduate school, that I should be sitting here alone in my library cubicle getting, the, getting a thrill out of what this means for, the, for, the, for biblical narrative. It, it, it's a cosmic epic. That's what it's turned into for me. I shouldn't be the one sitting here just enjoying it. Everybody, every Christian, every Bible student should be able to get the benefit of high scholarship in these areas. And I thought to myself, I can do that. I I can make this stuff decipherable and comprehensible to people outside the guild, you know, outside the ivory tower. And that became a mission. You know, I I had to do my dissertation. I did that. I also wrote the facade during what should have been the first year of my dissertation. But it just never left. And I plugged away at it. It was a putter project for 15 years, 
And I'm not kidding when I when I tell people, look, you know, you're not going to agree with a lot of the things I, I, I say. Everybody has their nice interpretation of, of past passages like Genesis 6, either to make them go away and put them back on the shelf and thank you, I never need to think about that again, or, you know, so, something else. But, but my argument in the unseen realm is that, look, you cannot strip the Bible of its supernatural worldview and claim to understand it. You can't do these these sorts of things and claim to be interpreting the Bible in context. The right context for interpreting the Bible is not evangelicalism. It is not Roman Catholicism. It is not Protestantism. It is not the Reformation. It's not the Puritans. Okay, It's none of these things. These are all alien contexts to the Bible. The right context for interpreting the Bible is the one that produced the thing. And these are God's decisions to come to a certain people at a certain time, at a certain place, and with a certain worldview, in a certain you know, time period of history, and say, I want you to write something down for posterity. I want people to know the story as it is rightly told of my interaction and the interaction of the spiritual world with your world. And I want you to know who you are. And I want you to know why you're estranged from God. I want you to know why evil has overspread the earth. And I want you to know what I have done about it for you. And yet we, we have a church, we have Christians that are selectively supernatural. They, they want to be comfortable. Okay, I, I'm done protecting people from their Bible. I'm over that. And it, it's a good thing because there's so much to discover and and. And biblical, the biblical story, again, the biblical epic, becomes something that is just a, a fascination. The intelligence of its interconnectedness uh, is, is just an awesome thing. But we miss so much of it because we, we don't have pastors that, that spend their time trying to understand Scripture in, in light of its original context. Usually they're trying to perpetuate a, a denominational subculture. And that is not the mission of the church. That is not the mission of, of, of the community of God, the kingdom of God. Okay, it, it just isn't. I understand why that's done, but it isn't. And so I think it's high time, and the unseen realm is my, is my first salvo. It will not end here, Lord willing. The unseen realm is my first salvo to getting people to read their Bible again for the first time. One thing, everybody who listens weekly to The Fourth Watch, you know that we are a ministry, we're a Christian radio program, and we dive into topics that make people uncomfortable. And literally, we're a... Good, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, 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 and I know uh, this is our first time working together, uh, Mike, but it's really The Fourth Watch, it's supernatural Christianity. It's getting into the scripture to see exactly what was going on and then how it's going on today still is part of the grand deception. And I think that I can't tell you how many people have written me and they're like, you know, I just I just I think you're out there. You're out there. You're really getting into some stuff. This is crazy. You're tapping into the, these books like the book of Enoch. And that's just ungodly. I mean, I've been accused. I've been called names and that's cool. It doesn't bother me at all because if they want to call me names, they can call me names. I'm here to bring out the truth. I'm yeah. here to let people realize that there is a spiritual world that is bigger than this little blue marble that we live on. So I think it's awesome. I, I think this is great what you're doing. I think, I mean, to see people get uncomfortable, that's really, that's the first step into success. 
Really. I mean, you'll never be successful at anything if you don't get out of your comfort zone. And the thing that's the most important is having that relationship with your creator through Jesus Christ, Yeshua. That's what's important. But we were created to glorify God. We're not the center of his world. He should be the center of our world. We have to deflate our view of man and realize that God has always been inflated because he created us. And and to go into the, the Hebrew, we're dealing with Elohim. And I love the fact that you mentioned that in Psalms because Elohim is a plural word. Yeah, I mean, in, in Psalm 82, 1, it, it's, again, you know, most, there are, there are ch- translations that cheat, but there are a number that, that do a decent job of it. it. It's not a difficult verse to translate. You have Elohim occurring twice in the same verse. The first occurrence, you know, it has to be translated singular because of grammar. And and, that, and that's, you know, Elohim Nitzav Ba'adad El. Nitzav is a singular participle. Elohim means God with no S on it, okay, in that part. The second half of the verse, though, Bekerev Elohim, in the midst of. You can't be in the midst of one, right? So th- this is, this is again, grammar driving the fact that the second occurrence of Elohim must be plural. So you have the same word two times, same verse, and one is, you know, the, the grammar tells you what to do with it. We have words like this in, in English. If I if I look at you and say, hey, Justin, dear, D-E-E-R, one or more than one, you got no idea. Fish. Okay, you know, it, we have words like this that, that and, and deer, I think, is, is, is a real sheep, you know, a really good I- example because, it instructs people to the fact that you don't know what the word means until you put it in a sentence, okay? Okay, I, I hit the deer with my car, all right? Chances are that's more than one. If I, put, if I say, the deer is walking across the road, then you know it's one because of the word is. If I say the deer are walking, then you know it's more than one because of the grammar. I mean, there are just words like this in English that require con, you know, that that kind of context. Elohim is the same thing in in Hebrew. Elohim is shaped. The academic term would be it is morphologically plural. Okay, it's shaped. It's spelled plural, but most of the time it's used in the Hebrew Bible. It's singular because of the grammar. Well, there there are times in Psalm eighty two one where you get both. Wow. And, and a lot of people just just don't realize that because if you're like use, using the New American Standard Bible, what you get in Psalm 80, 82, 1 is, you know, God's judging the mighty. Hey, look, Elohim, it, it, that, it doesn't mean mighty. That is a deliberately obscuring translation. Okay, ESV does a nice job. King James is a nice job. It's in you know, God's. I mean, that, that, that's what it is. So this isn't a difficult verse, but for some reason, again, certain translations tend to to sort of obscure certain things. And this, by no means, is not the only example, uh, but it's sort of a fundamental uh, example. And when you start exposing people to this, trust me, I know what it's like to be in front of an audience and have people look at you like you got two heads. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm just used to that. But I'm telling you, look, 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 I'm not your enemy. I'm not a hostile biblical critic. Well, I used to tell my students all, this all the time. I mean, I've, I've taught for over 15 years, you know, in, in the, the green campus. It's like, look, I'm going to do things to you, and I'm going to say things to you. Because, I, you know, I get it. You walk in here, and I, can, I already know the look. I've, I've, I've known the look. I've seen it hundreds of times. I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. Well, guess what? I'm, in five minutes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just essentially tell you how much you don't know. And I'm going to shock you. 
I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, frighten you maybe, but I'm doing it because I am your friend. Inside my classroom, we can control the discussion. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you right between the eyes with stuff and then I'm going to teach you how to unpack it. Okay. How to frame the question, how to handle this or that, because I am your friend. I'm, I'm not hostile to your faith. I'm one of you. I'm, I'm a believer, you know, but, but a lot of people, a lot of Christians, because they, they sort of grow up in, in, in church. And again, I'm not, I'm not down on church. I, I, I'm, I'm down on, on pastors assuming people are not interested in content or that they can't digest content. I think we regularly, habitually underestimate the interest level and the ability of normal people to understand this sort of stuff. That's what I'm down on. And, and, and I, I'm trying to convince people, and I usually have to speak to, to lay people, not pastors, but it's like, look, you know, you, th- there's just more to the Bible than self-help platitudes. There's more to it than biographical sketches. There's more to it than be nice to your wife and your kids. Okay, there's just, there's so many things here to discover. And some of them are going to trouble you initially, but nothing that you come across will have been thought of for the first time by you. You know, everything has been covered. And I can tell you where to find the information and, and part of the logic of the book. You know, there, I, I refer to it as the dirty little secret of the unseen realm is that nothing in the book is original to me. Absolutely nothing. Everything you'll see in the book, everything you'll read in the book is the result and can be found in. And I give you the breadcrumb trails. It's found in peer-reviewed scholarship. I am not making anything up. I'm not speculating. I'm not guessing. And I'm giving you the breadcrumb trail so that you can check up on me. People have thought about this stuff very carefully. And again, I'm, my job, my, I view my role, my ministry, if I have one here, is to make, is to translate it for you, is to make it digestible so that you don't have to be a scholar. You know, you don't have to get the PhD to understand this stuff. The question that I would want to bring up in this this particular situation is when we we, we see in and I'm a King James guy I use the King James and I go back to the Strong's Concordance and do word studies um, and I'm not a scholar by any means uh, I'm just I'm just a regular guy that has a film degree and who's been who's been called by the Lord into ministry so um, it, having somebody like you as a resource to go and, and cite your work and to see what you're doing is very valuable to me but the question I would have just in dealing with the Elohim. Uh, we see in the King James Bible, we do see the word gods with little g show up quite a few times. And even um, there was one point, and I believe it was in, uh, might have been in Exodus, but the children of Israel are told, you're going to go through these lands and do not enter into covenant with any of their gods. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not speaking of a little wooden idol. I mean, you can't no. enter into a covenant with an idol. And obviously, Paul said in the New Testament that there are demons behind the idols. Yeah, and and, and God... Go back to Psalm 82. God does not work with idols. Idols are not part of his entourage. Idols do not work for the God of Israel. Okay, the God of Israel judges idols, which he's you know he's 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 judging the gods there, but he he has nothing to do with them. These are these are gods, you know. In again, in the heavenly host, divine counsel in Psalm 82. One is just a word. It's a kind of an academic term, but it's right there in Psalm 82 for the heavenly host. You know, and, and part of God's heavenly entourage does not include blocks of wood and pieces of stone. People fundamentally misunderstand uh, the relationship of, of idols to 
gods. They, they fundamentally misunderstand idolatry. It, if you let, let me give you an illustration. There are Assyrian texts, for instance, where the, the Assyrians are going to go out. You know, they're the Klingons of the Old Testament, as I like to refer to them. So it's like, who, who are we going to dump on today? You know, so they, they go on, you know, their journey. They're going to go route the city or whatever, and they have a battle. And, uh-oh, you know, our, our god, our idol, gets destroyed. Now, does the Assyrian think, well, my god's dead. They just killed him. No. What their solution is in the text is, well, we got to build another idol. Yep. Okay, because the entity still lives. What an idol, what an idol was in the ancient world was a, it was a means by which to localize the deity. It was, it was a house. It was a place, a thing for a, a spirit that they really believed existed for it to inhabit and to go with them. And to localize, okay, so you go out to battle with, you know, with, with your God. Your God goes with you. This is why they, they would build the idol. They're not, they're not idiots, even though the, the prophets make fun of them as though they were, you know, it's, it's pejorative humor. <laughs> but, but they know that, okay, we're building this thing, but we're not, co- we're not creating a, a God. We're not creating the spirit. We're building this thing to, to mimic, you know, this deity we already believe that it exists so that the deity will now inhabit this thing and and the, and the idol becomes its form to us this is the way we parse it because we you know we have to be able to be to to set have our five senses here you know got to be able to see something so they, they were smart enough but but what they did as part of the ceremony was something called in, in both Akkadian literature and Egyptian literature the opening of the mouth okay that was that was so that you know because you know, humans that when the mouth is open they breathe you know this is how you become alive or you stay alive you are alive by the evidence that you're breathing and so the logic was we're going to open the mouth through this ritual ceremony the deity will come down and inhabit this object the object gets broken well we need another one so he can come and visit us again you know so the idea that that gods in the old testament are nothing more than blocks of wood and stone is false the best verse for this is Deuteronomy 32:17, because right there in the verse, we have, you know, it, 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 this is another great lesson on on how, uh, you know, translations just deliberately will mess something up. Again, because because the results of a good translation sometimes scare translators. So in Deuteronomy 32:17, we read about the Israelites and you know God's giving them this verbal spanking here, and it says they, they sacrificed to demons. Okay, the, the, the Hebrew word is shadim. It's actually a territorial entity, not a demon in the New Testament like we think, like, you know, you see there. But they sacrificed to demons that were not Eloah, that were not God. And then the next line is to Elohim, to gods, they had never known. Right, right there. You have Shadim equated with Elohim. Okay? And Paul, you brought up Paul. Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 21 and 22 when he talks about demons. Now here's the question, Christian. Do you think Paul believed that demons were real? Well, duh. Okay, of course. Well, if Paul believed that, and Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 32, 17, and that verse equates the Shadim with Elohim. It calls them Elohim. Then guess what? The gods are real. Absolutely. Okay, and in the Exodus, this is why, you know, God says, this night, you know, the, the, the death angel, the Passover, 
this night I will have victory over the gods of Egypt. What? What is is God saying? Hey, tonight I'm going to go beat Donald Duck. I'm going to go beat <laughs> Spider Man. You know, oh, who Yahweh? Who is like you? You are greater than Batman. You're greater than Wonder Woman. Look, I'm greater than them because they don't exist. That's right. Okay, if if you turn the gods into fictional characters. Where is the glory? Well, I'll answer that for you. You ain't got any. Or you've got only as much as I do or you do. Again, but but we we are not used to thinking on these terms because, again, going back to Psalm 82 again, people get freaked out. I mean, I, I present this in, in front of, you know, lots of different audiences. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm used to people looking at you like you got two heads. So it's like, well, well that's polytheism. Okay, here's here's why people re- I understand why people react that way, and here's here's why they react that way, and here's why they're wrong. Okay, when we see the letters G, O, and D in a in a text or whatever, we our brains because we are modern Western people. Okay, our brains see G, O, and D, and we mentally bring to that word, a specific set of unique attributes. And that's why we can't put an S on it. That's why that that feels wrong to put an S on it. Because when we see G-O-D, we think of omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, sovereignty, predestination, you know, all this kind of stuff. We assume that the G-O-D means a certain set of specific unique, unique attributes that can only be held by one being. That is not the way a biblical writer thought about the word Elohim. And I know that. You should always say, you know, I always tell people, when, when Mike says something, you should always, something in your head should go off. Well, how do you know that, Mike? Well, I'll tell you how I know that. I know that because of the way biblical writers use the term. If you have Bible software or something like it and you did a search on Elohim, you're going to get thousands of hits, by the way. But if you go through them all, you know, I actually have, and I actually have this posted on my, on one of my websites somewhere. That, that's exciting reading there. But you go, you, you can court all the results. Elohim is actually used of a half dozen different things. It's used of the God of Israel. It's used of the gods of the council here who are also called sons of the Most High in verse 6, Psalm 82. It's used of demons. We just saw Deuteronomy 32, 17. It's used of the gods of the nations like Kamosh or Baal or something like that. And it's used of the, the Malach Adonai, the angel of the Lord, in Genesis 35, 7. That's a kind of an oblique reference because you got to go, you have to ask yourself, well, what's that episode referring to? And then you wind up, you know, finding that it's the angel, not... And here's the kicker. It's used in 1 Samuel 28, 13 of the disembodied dead, specifically Samuel. Okay. Now here's the question. Do you really believe that a biblical writer thought that their dead uncle was on the same level as the God of Israel? That's a good point. That's a great point. It, it is utterly absurd. A biblical writer didn't think that anything was on the level of the God of Israel, not the gods of the nations, not angels, not demons, not the disembodied dead, but they're all called Elohim. That tells you immediately that when a biblical writer looked at Elohim, 
They did not assign a specific set of attributes to the word like we do with G-O-D. They don't think about that word the same way. So the natural question is, well, what does Elohim mean? It's, it's not a complicated term. The reason why all these things are called Elohim, the thing that unites them all, is that they are all residents of what we call the spiritual world, which is naturally the disembodied realm. That is why all of them are Elohim. Now, in that realm, you do have rank and power and hierarchy. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim. But there are lots of Elohim. Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. Because Yahweh gets described in a whole range of ways that no other Elohim is ever described in the Hebrew Bible. I just wanted to say, there, just to go along with what you're saying here, uh, in Psalms, there, there's multiple places where sure. David even says, you are my Elohim. Yep. And Well, how about this one? God of gods. Hey, guess what, folks? God of gods means exactly what it says. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it means exactly what it says. Yahweh is the God of gods. He isn't the God of the Justice League. Okay, or the Avengers, or Marvel cartoon characters. He is the God of gods. It means exactly what it says. You know, again, you know, Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. He, this is why the, the biblical writers take great care to say Yahweh is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. Yahweh is the lone creator. In fact, Yahweh created the other Elohim. Yahweh is the lone sovereign. Yahweh has you know, has all power. I mean, none of those words are Elohim. The, the, the distinction of one God above all others, not just functionally, not just in popularity, okay, because that's henotheism, okay? We're talking about ontologically, by definition, by nature, by essence, the distinction of one that is different I, I, the term I use is Yahweh is species unique. Okay. That theology is what an Israelite, an Orthodox Israelite biblical writer would have believed. They are not polytheists. Okay. Biblical writers are not polytheists, despite the fact that they have lots of Elohim running around. They use Elohim of, of different things. They, they do not assign a specific set of attributes to that word. But that's our, that's our problem. It's not theirs. That is our, it's a modern problem. Monotheism actually was a term coined only in the 17th century. You know, and then, then it's, it's contrast was not polytheism. It was actually atheism. Okay. We believe in, in a God. You don't believe in any, you know, that kind of thing. But it's a modern term. Modern terms often just do not cut it when it comes to what a biblical writer would have believed because they're, they're millennia removed from us in the way they talk, in how they think, how they frame their, their world. Again, the scholar term for that is their cognitive frame of reference. They're different than us. The only way we can get inside their heads and have them inside our heads is to actually drill down into the text and have our theology be text-driven, text-based. And that's all I'm doing in Psalm 82, like in the unseen, unseen realm. I spent a good deal of time on Psalm 82, and you know a lot of these other weird passages, because none of these passages that we think are weird 
or that we would have trouble with or that our translators feel they have to obscure, none of them would have troubled an ancient Israelite. Okay, my goal, other than making high scholarship decipherable to people, my other goal is, I in Unseen Realm, I want the Israelite living in your head. Because it's the only way. You've got to have the Israelite in your head. You've got to have the first century Jew in your head to understand all of the interconnections, all of the richness, to really understand Scripture. And, and if you had them in your head, when you come across these strange passages, you will know why they're there. You will know what role they play. You will know why the writer bothered to put those verses in there or that statement in there. It only looks weird to us because we are thousands of years removed from them. We are outsiders. Okay? We, we are not biblical insiders. We are not part of this world. And again, the only correct context for interpreting the Bible, the only accurate one, is the context that produced the thing. Now, I usually get to about this point in a lecture and people are like, I can, I can read it on their face. Oh, I feel tired already. I'm not, I'm not going to go to graduate school. Look, you don't have to. You don't have to. Okay. Again, it's, it's why I wrote the book, but it's also why we produce things, you know, where I work like Bible software. It's also why people write books and articles. What you need is you need to know where to find the right information, the good information. And then you need to get off your butt and read it. You need tenacity. Okay, and I I like to give people my testimony, you know, uh, again, around this time. It's like, and I'm not exaggerating any of this. This is not for a fact. This is is true. I, I was not raised in a Christian home. I had no Bible background. My first exposure to, to biblical stuff was a, a childhood friend who lived next door to my grandmother. Okay. Their family lived next door to my grandma. I'd go to my grandma's a lot. And so me and this guy became good friends. He's actually the namesake for the main character in my novels. You know, it's my little, my little nod to this guy. But I would go over to their house, single mom, four kids, two of them had cystic fibrosis. I mean, they just struggled mightily. I look back on it now, I just wonder how in the world they made it. But they were believers. You know, that honestly, that's how they made it. And they would invite me to for their family Bible time. And I'd sit there because, man, I, I want to play something else. But if I got to sit here and do this, I'll do it. You know, and so I would marvel at, at how much my Bible stuff my nine-year-old friend knew. Here's what I knew. And again, this is no exaggeration. When I was nine, I had heard of Jesus, kind of hard to miss him, growing up in America. I had heard of Adam and Eve, and I had heard of Noah. I was tapped at that point. I knew nothing. Okay, what, what I am today, I, I'm not a genius. I'm not brilliant. I, you know, people, people say that, look, I know better. I'm not. You know what I am? I am the result of five minutes at a time. I am the the living embodiment of cumulative effect of taking a little time every day to learn something about Scripture. Everybody, hearing this within the sound of my voice, can do that. Everybody can do that. It's just, do you have the tenacity to do it? Do you have the will to do it? 
Just five minutes a, a day. If you learn one thing a day about the Bible, guess what? A year from now, you'll have 365 new things under your belt. That's right. Okay, it is just cumulative effect. That's all it is. And anybody can do that. You have the tools. All of these ancient texts that, you know, the Egyptians produced, the Akkadians produced, the Sumerians, they're all in translation. People have written about them to help you understand what they're saying. I mean, I I do some of that in the unseen realm or on my blogs or whatever. You can do this. You can learn lots of stuff about Scripture. And, again, you can get to resources. This is, again, how I look at unseen realm. I'm helping you to frame these things. I'm helping you to think well about them. But everything in the book you can learn. I'm just help. I'm, I'm your. I'm sort of your guide. I, I'll give you the roadmap. You know how to how to parse these things and and make you aware that okay, here's where you need to drill down. Here's a good thing to read to, to drill down. Okay, you can do this. It's not rocket science. It just takes tenacity. That, that, that's really what it's about. Absolutely. Now I want to kind of steer us back to something we talked about earlier, and uh, I just I want to go back to Egypt for a second because. Um, we were dealing with the gods of Egypt, and when you're dealing with with the gods of Egypt, and, and specifically Horus, uh, let's just talk Horus for a second. Um, obviously, you have to go back to a certain timeline, a certain a certain point on the timeline where this was taught. It was brought forth, and it was it was taught. So it, and and I even go back to to Greece. I go back to the gods of Greece, which uh, many, from what we've seen, uh, there, there was a lot of adoption that took place between. Uh, ancient Roman religion and gods and goddesses and Greece. But with Greece, you had Zeus. And I personally take the view that Zeus was actually uh, a manifestation of Lucifer. That's my view. Um, I've done some, some pretty obscure research into this area, but Zeus claims to be the god of gods. It, it's not difficult to tie Zeus to Baal. That's actually sort of a no-brainer. Even though, even though Baal, I mean, Baal is the one at Ugarit. And, and elsewhere in Canaan, uh, even though he was the, the co-regent under El, it is actually Baal who is called the Most High. Uh, it, to, to use maybe more familiar language, Baal was El's vizier. He's, he's the one who actually did everything. He was he was the lead warrior. He was commander in chief. You know, he he basically ran the other gods. You know, he supervised them. He he, he ran everything. You know, on behalf of the, the fatherly figure, El, kind of like, you know, Odin and Thor and all that kind of stuff, you know, from the movies. But, I mean, we, you know, El is, is the all-father, but Baal is actually the, the, the king of everything. And Baal, you know, imagery and titles, you, you, know, you can pretty well easily associate with Zeus. And why that's important for what you just said is that Baal was lord of the dead. And this is how the, uh, again, the original rebel, you know, the Nakash from Genesis 3, and of course, you know, the one who wanted to be above the Most High in Isaiah 14, Hillel ben Shakar, from from which we get the term Lucifer via the Latin Vulgate. Um, they were, he was Lord of the Dead. That was his both his punishment and also his, I say, his advantage because because his ownership of every human being after the fall as Lord of the dead. I mean, he was sort of entitled to their souls because they were going to die now. Um, that's who that figure is. And so you, you get very good, clear connections between that figure and Baal and Zeus and some of these other things. There's actually a lot 
uh, about Greek mythology that draws on, and in some cases there is direct borrowing from ancient Near Eastern sources. There, there's there's a really hard to find book, and I'll just telegraph it now. It's really expensive because it's it's out of print now. But the major scholarly work on this is called The East Face of the Helicon, H-E-L-I-C-O-N. It's by M.L. West. He was a classic scholar. I don't know if he's still alive. Um, but he traces, you know, he traces all of the ancient Near Eastern threads that wind up in or in wind up informing Greek mythology. And if you can do that, you can then go back to the ancient Near Eastern material and, and, you know, understand, you know, certain things in Israelite uh, religion, Israelite theology as well, because the prophets are often, and the biblical writers are often writing in response to something that the Mesopotamians believed or something the Mesopotamians wrote uh, that sort of thing. You know, it, there, there's a lot of interconnectivity because, especially like in Genesis 1 to 11, it's very Mesopotamian in flavor. Um, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, okay, the, the Sons of God episode is there because it is a written polemic, a written corrective. It, it's a written slap in the face to a certain idea a certain set of ideas in Mesopotamian theology. So if you if you start to understand the 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 interconnections and and how they inform what a biblical writer was thinking, why would he write this? You know, what who's he shooting at? What's he shooting at? It can also help you down the chain uh, with Zeus because a lot of the Zeus stuff winds up in what we would call uh, Antichrist imagery or Antichrist the Antichrist profile, if you want to put it that way. Um, again, none of these things are coincidental or accidental. They, the, to the ancient person, the ancient person would have heard a term or they would have caught an epithet to some figure, you know, like the Antichrist figure, and they, their mind would have just been, been able to fill in the gaps. They would have gotten the message that was intending to be telegraphed because it was just part of their world. They would have picked up on certain things. And so, I mean, when we're dealing with the gods, it – or the Elohim. Let's just let's just go ahead and use the terminology the Elohim. Yeah. Let's let's use the <laughs> <laughs> But when we're, when we're dealing with the Elohim, we're dealing with a, a pantheon of false gods that have fallen from fallen from grace, if you want to use that terminology. But um, I, I use the term they're in rebellion. They're in rebellion, and they they can't they can't come back to God. And we even see in the Book of Enoch that they they some of them even tried to communicate back with God through Enoch and he said, Hey look, you're the ones that were supposed to be the messengers, not me. Y'all have already screwed up. Right. Well you're actually dealing with, with different sets there. Because the, the original offenders let's go back to Genesis six. The original offending deities, the sons of God there, the Elohim, who decide to rebel. Again we, we get a, a very detailed story in, in Enoch, and, and people say, "Well, that's Enoch. That's not part of the New Testament or the Old Testament, Mike. You're, you know, you're just doing theology with Enoch." Uh, if you understand the original Mesopotamian context of Genesis six one through four, what Enoch says about that, unbeknownst to us, picks up on the original Mesopotamian material. So, yeah. Some, a lot of the stuff that Enoch says about what, what's going on here is a very close match to what the biblical writer would have been thinking, what he would have been shooting at in the Mesopotamian theology. Because those are the bad guys that the writer of Genesis is shooting at, 
And Enoch, the, the people who are producing, you know, produced Enoch, they know that. They know what, what the biblical writer is shooting at. And so they, they draw out the story and, and, and give it to their own readers. So, you know, you, you get, you know, this, this sort of, you, know, you, you go back to Genesis 6, you know, and you can, you, you pick up on, on these sorts of threads. And, and, and so you have to realize that New Testament writers, biblical writers read things. Oh, what a shocking idea. You know, they actually read stuff. And, and the stuff that they read helped them articulate what they were producing in inspired material. And, and these interconnections are, are, are pretty significant, pretty important. But you're actually dealing with more than one set. The original offenders of Genesis 6, the Watchers, the Sons of God, those Elohim, all of the traditions, including the Mesopotamian, have those guys imprisoned. So they they are they are not the, the the gods of the nations as as we think they're 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 basically sitting sitting in prison okay and these these are the ones that Enoch you know is asked to, to mediate for. Other than that, the second group are the ones that that derive from Deuteronomy thirty two eight and nine, when Yahweh in a punitive act uh, to punish you know humanity divides up the nations. That's a reference to Babel according to the number of the sons of God. Those gods who are assigned the various nations because Yahweh is essentially divorcing himself from those nations, from humanity. And that's why he goes in the next chapter after Babylon calls Abraham and says, I'm going to start my own again. I'm going to start over. I don't need you. If you're not going to obey me after the flood, fine. I'm going to get, you don't want me to be your God. You want to be your own God or some other God. I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to assign you to lesser Elohim. Now, originally they work for, for the God of Israel because they're tasked with this. And we know from the covenant language and we know from what Paul says later in Acts 17 that, that in some way this was designed to guide the nations back through Israel to the true God. But it doesn't work that way. Those gods also become rebels. And these are the ones referred to as Shadim in Deuteronomy 32.17, the, you know, the, the demons. Remember I said Shadim is actually a territorial entity, a guardian entity? Oh, yeah. It fits, the, it, it fits perfectly because... That's what happens in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. The nations get divided. They're assigned, you know, to, to other Elohim. And those other Elohim claim those nations as their turf. And they become corrupt. They seduce the Israelites into worshiping them instead of the God of Israel. And, and God has to judge them. That's what's going on in Psalm 82. So you actually have two sets. You got the offenders of Genesis 6. They're in prison. And I, I think, by the way, that, that Revelation 9 describes their release. I think that's the point of Revelation 9, because all the traditions have the offending watchers, the sons of God, in prison until, quote, the time of the end, or until the day of the Lord, or until the time of judgment, or whatever. Because they're released, and then they're destroyed after they wreak havoc for a while. But the second group, we're still dealing with. These are the principalities and powers that Paul talks about. For your audience, okay, think about this. Yeah, Paul does use the word demon, you know, half a dozen times in his letters. He, he does. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, 21, 22, we talked about that already. And he identifies these entities as demons, okay? Because that's what Deuteronomy 32 calls them, the Shadim, the, the guardian spirits. But look at all the other terms Paul uses. Here they are. Principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. What do they all have in common? They are all terms of geographical dominion. 
every one of them. Paul inherits what I what I call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. You know, also the Daniel 10 worldview that the nations are under dominion of of gods that are now hostile to Yahweh and hostile to his people. This is what Paul's dealing with. And they are of higher rank than what we think of as, as, as demons. You know, demons in the New Testament are not these guys. These guys are, are much bigger. They're, they're, they're higher up on, on, in the food chain, in, in the spirit world. Um, I don't know if you want to get into this, but you, you, well, you probably know because of, of the nature of your show. The demons that you see in the New Testament that seek embodiment, they are, as again, Enoch tells us in, in great detail, but, but as certain Rephaim passages in the Old Testament suggest and imply, Demons in the New Testament are the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, That's what they are. It's what all the traditions have them. Well, you've kind of thrown me a curveball, um, and, and I love this. I, I mean, the fact that I could even be having a conversation with a guest and get a curveball thrown at me, I love it. I love it. I mean, I just have to say that's that's good. Um, I never made the connection of the word demon being used in the Old right. Testament. Uh, I never connected it being something other than a disembodied uh, right. Nephilim. See, see, they're, they're only in the Old Testament. You don't have, you don't have any references to, to demon possession. You don't have any, re- or the Old Testament. You don't have any references to demon possession. There's no casting out of demons. Uh, although strangely enough, that's part of the messianic profile. Uh, people, you know, people just, you know, Jesus goes around and starts casting out demons. Oh, you're the son of God. You're the son of David. Well, hey, there's no Old Testament verse that says the Messiah is going to do this. Where do they get that idea? Well, that's a subject for another time. But you, you don't. You only have that term shadim occur two times in the whole Old Testament. It's three quarters of your Bible. It, it's a very un- rare term. And and what we see in the Gospels again about these these spirits, you know, seeking embodiment and all this kind of stuff. You, you don't get any of that in in the Old Testament. And it's because the shadim of the Old Testament were again these these territorial entities that were now corrupt and evil. They, they, they've gone to the dark side. They, they were assigned turf, and then they, they begin to you know, corrupt the people of, of Yahweh. You know, they're not content with their own domain. They're not content to do their job. You know, Psalm 82, this is why they're getting you know, verbally castigated by, by Yahweh. You have become corrupt. You, know, you, you, you deal with people corruptly. In other words, you're not ruling these nations according to my laws, according to my justice. You're not doing your job. You know, and, and you're going to die like men. You know, it, it, that's why the end of the psalm, the psalmist says, rise up, O God, and, and take back the nations. Take the nations. You know, it, it's, a, it's a reference back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview that there's going to come a time, and it began, you know, with Jesus' first ministry, especially at Pentecost, where the nations began to be reclaimed. The, as the kingdom of God advances, the, the, those who hold dominion over the nations lose their grip. Uh, they, they lose ground every day. You know, it's this, it's this inexorable march toward final culmination when the kingdom of God, the people of God, it, it's a global thing. It's not just, you know, tied to ethnic Israelites or anything like that. So, I mean, this is the, the big picture of, of the New Testament, but that's a lot different, again, than what you get in, in the New Testament era. And again, people think, well, this is just Enoch theology. No, it's not. If you go back and you look at the Rephaim, in the Old Testament, there are two or three passages 
that have the Rephaim, who are the giant clans, one of the, you know, one of the terms for the giant clans, you have them in hell. You have them in the underworld. This is, and, and, and texts outside the Bible, Ugaritic texts, this is where they, this is where they are. This is why Bashan, when Moses and Joshua go up through the Transjordan, you know, on their way to Sion and Og, this is why Bashan, in the region where the wars with, with the giant king Og take place, Bashan was viewed as ground zero for, for hell in Canaanite texts. You have two cities mentioned in the biblical narrative, Ashtaroth and Edrai. Those cities both show up in Ugaritic texts, and they are referred to as the gateways to the netherworld, toward the dominion of the dead. Okay, this is, Bashan actually is a Semitic word for serpent. I mean, how, how much more telegraphing can, can the writer give us? <laughs> this is not a good place. There's a cult center to Baal in it. And of course, all that changes in the New Testament. The New Testament, this is when Jesus goes up to Caesarea. Jesus and cosmic geography is something I talk about in the book. I mean, where Jesus goes and what he says when he's there and what he does when he's at certain places, there's a lot of baggage there that we miss. But he goes up to Caesarea. And this is the famous gates of hell passage, you know, Matthew 16. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who do men, who do men say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, like, that, that's great, Peter. You know, the spirit revealed that to you. You didn't, you didn't just, you're not smart enough to come up with that yourself, you know. But then he said, then he says, you're Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. And Catholics say, oh, well, that, that, the, the, you know, the rock is Peter. Protestants say, oh, we can't say it's Peter because then we'd be Catholic. You know, the, we'll, we'll just say the rock is the church. It's all Christian. Hey, you're both wrong. Absolutely. The rock is the place where they're standing. Okay. It is, it is the domain of the dead. It is in Bashan. Caesarea Philippi is at the northern tip of Bashan. This is the place of the serpent. Okay, it's the gateway to the netherworld. What, what Jesus is essentially saying is, look, here's where it begins. I am going to make Satan's domain his tomb. Okay, this is what we're going to do. He goes up there and, he, and he, he, he pokes him in the eye. And then it says, the gospel writer says, three days from, from there, they, they went up three days into the mountain. Well, there's only one mountain there. Guess where that is? It's Mount Hermon. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. so glad you're bringing this up. I've been wanting it's, to say this for so long on the show. It, it, it's not Tabor. And again, read the Unseen Realm. I give you the documentation, all this kind of stuff. He goes up to Mount Hermon, which is the place where, again, in Enochic tradition, uh, where the, the uh, angels descended. Hermon in Hebrew is Hermon, which is related to Kerem, which is to devote to destruction. Again, the verb to annihilate the Anakim, the giant clans back in the Old Testament. Again, none of this is coincidental. It's all interconnected. But what happens at, on Mount Hermon, three days after the Caesarea episode, that's where the transfiguration happens. Yep. And, it, and it, it's, again, Jesus, he's there, and he reveals himself for who he is. Basically, the messaging is to the powers of darkness. I'm here. Do something about it. He's provoking a fight because a, a week, the, you, you got the Gospels, it's just amazing. Right after he does this, it says, and from this point forward, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter freaks out, okay? But a week later is the triumphal entry, and a week after that, he's dead. And that's exactly what needs to happen for the, the powers of darkness, for their demise. 
and, and I make a, a, a big you know, deal of this because Paul does in 1 Corinthians 2. You know, when Paul says, hey, had the rulers of this world known what was going to happen, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know the plan. Jesus goes to these places and other places, and he pokes them in the eye. He wants to pick a fight okay, with darkness because it is time to get the show on the road. Okay, It, it is time for this to happen. This is the, you know, the, the whole fullness of time thing. I'm here. Do something about it. Now, in the Gospels, they, they know who he is. Satan knows who he is. The demons know who he is. They're the ones that call him the son of the most high and all that stuff. But you, you can see the reasoning process. Well, okay, son of the most high is here. We know who this guy is. And, you know, the only reason God would send him is, you know, he must be planning to reinstall the kingdom. You know, he's, he's always trying to do that on earth. And this is our turf. Okay. You know, we know he's here because somehow that God's going to try to start his kingdom again. So what do we do? What do we do? Let, let's, let's kill him. Sounds great. And they don't know that that is the, that is the key. It is the linchpin to the entire plan of salvation. It is the culmination point of salvation history. Jesus knows it. So when it's time for him to die, he goes to these places and he picks a fight. And then he begins to prepare his disciples. Hey, I know you enjoyed this. I know you got a chuckle out of me going up here and poking the Lord of the dead in the eye. I get it. But you got to realize the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and die. Yep. But if you get Unseen Realm, right around chapters, well, let me just take a quick look here. Uh, chapters 16 through 18. Those are the ones you show your Jewish friends. Because that's where we get into the what I, what I refer to as the two Yahwehs of the Old Testament, the Israelite Godhead. The idea of a Godhead is in the Old Testament. There's a reason why a first century Jew could worship Jesus and not feel like he was violating the Shema, the Lord our God is one. And it's because Yahweh in the Old Testament, there's an invisible Yahweh, and then there's a Yahweh that's embodied as a human being. And sometimes they show up together, and sometimes they're distinct. It is a two-person Godhead, and then later on that language gets applied to the Spirit in some of the prophets. Okay, We don't get the Trinity, and I know a lot of Christian teachers do this. They get the Trinity from like pronouns in the New Testament. Oh, the Holy Spirit's referred to as he. Well, that's nice. Big deal. Okay, where, where you get it is you get it from the Old Testament. And that is what to show your Jewish friends because it's like, look, I, I would, I did this to a Jehovah's Witness, a true confession. Got <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a Jehovah's Witness show up at my door. Okay, it's just, it was a bad day for them. They went yeah. to the wrong place. <laughs> So, so you get and, and they they don't know anything but the script, okay? And I and I'm not trying to be mean because I I want I want to trap them quickly because like I got better things to do. Right, right. So I'm like, okay, are you sure that God, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, is not an angel? Oh no no no, he's not an angel. Jesus is like an angel because he's created and he's not really deity and all that. You know, typical Jehovah's Witness theology. Okay. Well, let's go to Genesis 48. I didn't say this, but it's like this ain't in your script. This is, the, this is when Jacob blesses Joseph's children just before he dies. He said, we remember the story because of the crossing of the hands. And, oh, that's a nice Sunday school story. Hey, you're missing, you're missing the theology of it. 
in verse 15, Jacob says to, he, he says to jo- this is his blessing. And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Okay, God, there is Elohim. Second line, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Again, Elohim. There's a third line. Guess what's in the third line? May the Elohim before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. May the Elohim who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. May the angel Malach, who has redeemed me from all evil, and here's the kicker, may he bless the boys. The verb form is singular. It's not may they bless, it's may he bless. Well, which one's blessing? Is it God or is it the angel? And the answer is yes. The God of Israel is referred to as an angel here, and the angel is referred to as the God of Israel. Now, the point is not that God is an angel. The point is that this angel is God. And you start tracing that idea, this particular angel, Exodus 23, you know, God tells Moses, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you on the way, take you to the promised land, make sure you find the place, okay? Make sure that you obey him because he will not pardon your transgressions. Because why? Because my name is in him. Again, for your Jewish friends, if you have a really serious Jew now, in grad school I had one of these professors that we were not allowed to pronounce the divine name in class. He said, when you get to it, you either say Adonai, Lord, or you say Hashem, the name. There's something called name theology in the Old Testament. The name is another way of referring to Yahweh himself. Conservative Jews still do this. They say Hashem, the name, instead of the divine name. It's it's biblical. They didn't invent that. The name is the essence of God. It's the presence of God. It is God. Well, here we have in Exodus 23, God says to Moses, I'm going to send this angel ahead of you, and I'm in him. Now, I'm still up in heaven. I'm still watching, but I'm over there too and I appear as a man. Again, you, you, you read all this kind of stuff. When you get to Jacob's blessing, he says, hey, may the God who did this, may the God who did that, may the angel singular, may he bless these boys. That's a Godhead. This is why Jews could embrace God incarnate in Jesus Christ in the first century. And not only that, Jewish theology used to believe this. There's something called the two powers in heaven theology. Uh, in, in ancient Judaism, it was declared a heresy, not coincidentally, uh, at the end of the second century, which is you know, right after the advent of Christianity. There's a whole book on this by a Jewish guy, Alan Siegel, The Two Powers in Heaven. The whole book is about documenting in rabbinic, ancient rabbinic material, this belief that there were two Yahwehs. One was a man, the other was invisible. They were the same, but yet they were different. It's exactly the way Christians talk about Jesus. And here's the question I, I just want to propose, because this is right in, this is crazy, because I just got done talking with a guy. He wrote me, and he was criticizing uh, my view that the angel of the Lord was actually God. He was part of the Godhead. And he, he, he says, has the name in him. And, and I mean, what does it say? Uh, when, when, the, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah, once he went up, Manoah said, we shall surely die. We've seen the Lord. Look, look at, 
Look at Judges. That's Judges 13, and it it happens earlier in Judges 6 with Gideon. Yeah, there you go. Gideon begins the conversation with the angel of the Lord under the terebinth. And and at the end of the story, the angel of the Lord, you know, you know, burns up the sack, the the, the little offering there, and then he it says the angel of the Lord left, you know, went went to heaven, and then it and then Gideon freaks out and he says, oh, you know, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I've seen the angel of the Lord, you know, and then it says Yahweh said to him, don't freak out, you're not going to die. <laughs> Yahweh's still in the picture. Yep. Okay. I mean, if you go through the, the chapter. They're both in the conversation and in the picture because angel and Yahweh are interchanged. Well, one leaves and the other's still there. So are they the same or are they different? Okay, the answer is yes. Burning bush, who's in the bush? There's actually two. And we know that even from Acts 7 because, you know, Stephen says that Moses saw the form of an angel. Okay, but it's Yahweh speaking. So which is it? It's six and one and a half and is another. But but they're actually fused here in Genesis 48, which is which is why I love the passage. It's so obscure. And if if the biblical writer wanted to distinguish them, you use a plural verb. But the biblical writer who says the Lord our God is one, Shema, Shema, Shema. Okay, all this stuff chooses a singular. He's not bothered by the fact that Yahweh could be two. Okay, the angel is, but isn't Yahweh, in the same way that Jesus isn't the Father, but he's still God. Right, exactly. Okay? It's exactly the way that Christians talk and still talk about the relationship of Jesus to the Father while affirming the deity of Christ. This is Old Testament thinking. Now, another here's another place to take him. Okay, everybody knows the story with Abraham and the covenant, okay? It says in Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. And then they have a conversation. Takes it, takes Abraham outside, said, look at the stars. You know, that's kind of nice, you know. Well, that's just abstract. That's just abstract thinking there. Oh, really? Well, if you go to Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah's call, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah refers to the word of the Lord as Yahweh with the divine name. And then around verse 9, I think it is, it says, that, the, that he, he reached out his hand and touched my mouth. He's not, only, he's not only like visible, this is corporeal. The word of the Lord, who is Yahweh, touches Jeremiah's mouth. Okay, you have passages like this in the Old Testament, and Jews knew their Bible. This is why they came up with this thing called the two powers idea. Not a good good one and a bad one. This isn't dualism like Zoroastrianism or something. This is two good guys. But what about when you get into Psalms and you have David who talks about don't don't let your spirit leave me. So we even see Old Testament occurrences multiple times of the spirit of God. Right. I mean, yeah, don't I don't want your presence to leave me. And he refers to it as the spirit. I mean, again, if you know what you're looking for, like with the two you will run into it with the third, with the spirit. Ezekiel 1, you know, who, who is it that, that picks Ezekiel up by the hair? Is it, the, is it Yahweh who appears, you know, in, in physical form, human form, like, you know, or Ezekiel 8? It goes back to Ezekiel 1. It's Yahweh again in the form of a man. Picks up Ezekiel, you know, by the hair. Is it the spirit? Because the spirit's mentioned there, or is it the embodied one? Well, the answer is, well, we can't really tell. And the writer doesn't, doesn't, doesn't care about distinguishing them. And later on, a few verses later in Ezekiel 8, guess what? 
Yahweh is referred to in the third person reference, but then a verse later, Yahweh is the speaker. Hmm. Was it Yahweh? Is it the spirit or is it this embodied guy, you know, that that was on the throne? The answer is, who cares? People have said, well, the Catholic Church, they're the ones that deem the term Trinity. And I'm like, well, look, I don't care if you want to call it a Trinity, if you want to call it a Godhead, but we have just clear evidence in Scripture. (laughs) We just have, we have the Word of God. And the Word of God gives us, we see three persons in God. And when we get that, when, when we get to, to be with the presence of the Lord and we get our glorified bodies and, and all things are revealed to us, hey, you know what? If, if we find out that there's more than that, great. But I'm going to plant my feet in the scripture where we see three persons in the Godhead. Yeah. And if God, you know, you get to heaven, God says, you know, there's a better word than Trinity. <laughs> what are you going to say? Well, I, I want to go home now. I want a rain check. You know, this is, uh, this is really interesting, uh, brother Mike, because. I had done a teaching on the Trinity, and I had a guy who had written me, and his name is Reg. I'll just say his name because he actually wanted me to address this with you. And I told him, I said, look, you can you can reference, you can go to this particular show that I did. You can hear a teaching I did on the Trinity or the Godhead. And he said, I would really like to hear Dr. Michael Heiser address this. And I said, well, you know, it's pretty interesting because he's going to be on my show next week. <laughs> and, and, and I didn't even mention this to you at all. This was just like a divine appointment. It came right out. Let me throw one more thing in, okay? Again, if you get Unseen Realm, for your listeners who, who, who get the book or have the book, chapter 16 to 18 fleshes out, pun intended, you know, the, the embodied God in the Old Testament, okay, along with the God of his, you know, the, the, this, this two-ness, okay? And it gets into the three-ness too. But then you, you go a little later in the book into New Testament material, and what you have in the New Testament is... There's an awareness of this, okay, the angel is Yahweh, but also isn't. The same person or essence because the angel, this particular angel has the name, and then the name is Yahweh, okay? So they understand that, and what they do is really interesting. Because for them, the angel, the embodied one, the second Yahweh, and again, I have whole chapters on this, identified with Yahweh in the Old Testament, the New Testament takes those points of identification, the word of the Lord, the angel, the name, and, and applies them to Jesus, which is, you know, very normal. Now, now we're not dealing with just embodiment. Now we have incarnation, which even ups the ante. Okay. So it aligns that with Jesus. So Jesus becomes the second power. All right. In, in Jewish terminology. Well, guess what? There are four or five places in the New Testament where the spirit is referred to as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of Christ. The Lord who is the Spirit. This kind of language. And what that means is they're aligning the Spirit now with the second Yahweh, and that in effect makes the Spirit a third Yahweh. That is actually where you get Trinitarian thinking. It's not one verse, it's not a word, it's a it's a conceptual framework that you have God in more than one person. I mean, there are people who have sincere questions about the Trinity. I get that. But then you have people who sort of have, have made this a pro, – they're professional deniers. Okay, these are the people who are under-informed. Right. 
I've been teaching for for quite some time my belief that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. Or um, you'll probably correct me here if I'm saying this wrong because you are a scholar. I'm not. Uh, but what they what's known as a theophonic angel? Yeah, the, yeah, theophany. I mean, you, you, scholars use very various terms. I mean, I I would say that the angel of the Lord is the, is this second person embodied in the Old Testament. And that second person of the Godhead becomes incarnate in Christ in the New Testament. But, you know, and again, if, if you want to e- equate the two, you know, you know, like a, a, a Christo- Christophic theophany or something like that. To me, that, that's fine. I, I understand the point. You know, scholars would, would be pickier about the terminology, but again, who cares? You know, it, right. it's kind of six of one and a half dozen of another. We, we get that. It, the, you know, the only quibble I have with it is we need to distinguish incarnation from mere embodiment because uh, incarnation is special. That's born of a woman and all that stuff. Embodiment doesn't require that. But again, right. But but the point that you made, and, and, and I'm in total agreement that it's the second person of the Godhead. Yeah. Yeah. Which we learn it, in the New Testament that that's it's the second Yahweh. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I put it in the book. It's not that one is better than the other. You're not denying that that the one is unique. That's awesome. I do want to give you an opportunity uh, one more time. Let everybody know how they can contact you uh, to buy your book or the the websites. I know you get you don't have a lot of time for emails right now, um, but how can people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I did. Uh, I definitely want to let people know how they can follow your work and how they yeah. can they can buy your book. Well, the the, the best the, the the website is drmsh dr as in doctor and then my initials. Isn't that wonderfully clever? Uh, drmsh.com, and that is the nerve center. That's the headquarters. You can find all of the blogs, all my other websites, and, of course, the books uh, that I've written. Uh, you can also go to Amazon and just put in Unseen Realm with my last name, Heiser, uh, and you'll you'll easily find the book. It has a lot of reviews, 120-some reviews, so lots of people have chimed in on it very favorably. If you want to follow uh, the, the sites, the blogs, uh, you can subscribe to that, to, to each blog. There's an RSS feed. Again, you go to the homepage, you click on either Naked Bible or Paleo Babel or UFO Religions. I have three blogs. Get the RSS feeds or there's an RSS feed for the entire site. And you can also follow me on Twitter at MS Heiser, M-S-H-E-I-S-E-R. And uh, you'll get everything, you know, notifications of everything I post and whatnot. Well, Mike, it's uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I know that you've even challenged me with some of the things you said, and I, I really appreciate that. I know everybody that's listened, uh, well, at least most of them will appreciate it. <laughs> but uh, tell, tell, tell a friend and tell an enemy. <laughs> exactly. But uh, just from the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I want to thank you very much for your time, and uh, wow, I, I look forward to being able to have you on the Fourth Watch again. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, God bless you, brother. You too. Bye bye. Well, that was a lot to think about, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But now I want to steer us into tonight's Bible study segment, and I'm always excited to break out fresh encouragement and edification from the Word of God. We live in a time of identity crisis. The world is confused about who they are, and even the church seems to be confused about their identity as well. I realize that the modern church is made up of real and counterfeit believers on the surface level, but even as true Christians, we sometimes struggle with identity as well, if we're being honest. Many people look to role models and celebrities, or even pastors and teachers, to mimic, 
And that can be dangerous. But the challenge we face in this search for identity is finding the proper model. And the amazing discovery comes when we see the life and person of Jesus Christ Yeshua, which is recorded in the Bible. Now, the first thing we need to establish is the fact that Jesus did many things in his life that were not, in fact, recorded in Scripture. As a matter of fact, John was summing up his account of the gospel, and he closed with such an amazing statement that some people get a little baffled by it. John closed with this statement, John 21, 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So we see that there were many other awesome works that Jesus did in his earthly ministry that were not included in the Bible. And he did so many things that the world couldn't even contain the amount of books that it would have taken just to document his every action. Now, while that may seem overwhelming to some of you, here's the good news. God has strategically included the very things that we need in the Bible. You see, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He has preserved His Word for us to have today. And furthermore, the Word of God will be preserved for all eternity. Psalms 12, 6-7. So God has strategically placed the exact things that we need to know about Jesus Christ in the Bible which is the Word of God. And then on top of it all, Christ was and is the living Word. So we have the ultimate role model in Christ Jesus, in whom we are to mimic and portray, and we have before us the documentation of the life in which we are to imitate. We cannot imitate Christ if we don't know His life, if we don't know His teachings, and we don't know His ministry. So let's talk tonight about imitating Christ. Some of you may have heard this terminology before, and as a matter of fact, imitating Christ is actually commanded of us in the New Testament, and we see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. So we have the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul here, and this is what he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So we're told to be followers of God as dear children. The Greek word that we see here for followers is mimetes, and it literally means imitators. Going even deeper into the study, we can see that this comes from the same Greek word that we get the word mimic from. So we are directly commanded to be imitators of God, and that means that we will mimic His ways. And then Paul continues by saying that this is all summed up by us walking in love as Christ also has loved us. Now, can you guess what type of love he's referring to here? He's referring to agape love. So when we walk in true agape love, our actions will be selfless and they'll be directed by the Holy Spirit. And really everything that Christ did was done out of agape love. Even when he rebuked people, he was doing it out of a love that was benevolent towards the souls of men. Are you following? So in order to be true followers of Christ, we have to imitate His love, which was displayed throughout His life and ministry. There is absolutely no other way that we can imitate God outside of proper biblical understanding. The only way to have that is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to study the Bible. 
I'm reminded of a movie I saw a few years back. It was about these two brothers who were professional MMA fighters or mixed martial arts fighters. The story of the movie isn't really pertinent to the study tonight, but there's an aspect that is important. One of the main actors had never had any athletic training ever, let alone any fight training. He was a skinny guy, loved to eat junk food, but in order for him to become the warrior fighter for this movie, he had to imitate and mimic real fighters. He began changing his diet. He began exercising. He was training every day with the best UFC fighters and trainers available. I was able to watch some of the behind the scenes footage and I began to get an idea of just how much work this man had invested into this role. He not only learned the terminology, but he was performing the moves and he was living the entire lifestyle as he imitated and mimicked the professional fighters. After a hard season of training and learning, he had become a warrior, professionally seasoned fighter. He looked like a warrior. He moved like a warrior. He talked like a warrior. And most importantly, he lived like a warrior, on screen and off screen. We have to know the real God. Christ is the only way and his ways of living are deeper than just knowing the lingo and the terminology. We have to go through the schooling of the Bible, the boot camp of trials and tribulations. And furthermore, our works have to be tried with fire. We'll get back to that in just a few minutes. But I'm reminded of this man, this actor, who took on the role of a MMA fighter. He literally had to learn everything there was to learn. The moves, the practice, the diet. He had to take what he learned and then put it into practice into his own lifestyle so that he could be the warrior he needed to be. He couldn't simply act like a warrior. He had to be the warrior for this movie. And just like that, we have to be the warriors for Christ. Now, there are so many people who profess Christ. They know the scriptures. They can speak the Christianese language. But when push comes to shove, they aren't living the Christian life because they aren't imitating Christ. It's more than a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? You see, we have to be so well trained in the word of God and fully equipped in New Testament doctrine that our instincts reflect Christ. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, your instincts will reflect your walk. If you're truly walking with Christ, then your instincts will reflect Christ. Or more plainly stated, your actions will reflect Christ. But if you're walking in darkness, then your instinct or your actions are going to reflect darkness. Now, I know I'm stepping on some toes right now, but this is vital to comprehend. And it's my prayer that you will be encouraged in your training. And I hope that this study tonight will encourage you to be training in the ring and out of the ring. Because what we're going to learn is that as a Christian, we never step out of the ring. We are literally in the spiritual warfare zone 24 hours a day. My dad used to ask people a simple question. He'd say, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? Well, some people would say lemonade. Others would say lemon juice. But the right answer to the question is pretty simple. When you squeeze a lemon, you're going to get whatever is on the inside. When you get squeezed, what comes out? Are you trained and equipped for battle based on New Testament doctrine, based on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ? Are you imitating Christ in all that you do? Or are you imitating a well-seasoned imposter who knows how to make you feel good about yourself in your sin? There are all types of influences in the world today, 
And we have more distractions now, so many that I couldn't even list them. We have to be very careful who we imitate, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure many of you remember Heath Ledger. He took on the role as the demonic Joker in the Batman Dark Knight movie. It was one of his most grueling roles of all time. He began to imitate a demonic, maniacal killer. He became the very image of that demon. He was imitating a demon in his role. Some would say it was his darkest role that he ever portrayed on screen. But I believe that he became such an imitator of darkness that it began to weigh him down in his life. He was taking all types of medication and he's on record saying that he couldn't sleep and he needed medication for the anxiety and the stress he was faced with. He was on such a cocktail of medication that he died in his sleep. He had been imitating darkness and it ruined his life. So we have choices, ladies and gentlemen. We can imitate Christ Jesus as we're commanded by scripture or we can imitate imposters. It's so easy to be deceived into thinking that you're imitating Christ, but the truth will be known by comparing your lives to the New Testament. Is your life lining up with Christ or is it lining up with the cultural status quo? Are you training to be a warrior for Christ or are you unknowingly training to be a counterfeit? As we get down into more scripture, we see another confirmation in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says that we are to be followers of him or imitators of him, even as he is also of Christ. So Paul is telling us here that we are to do as he does. We are to do as Paul does. And this is because Paul is of Christ also. Paul was imitating Christ. So we see that when we are imitators of Christ, we are then representatives of Christ We are mimicking Christ and we are setting the example of Christ for others to follow in a like manner. We are the body, ladies and gentlemen, the body of Christ. I know last week some of you may have been shocked to learn that the body of Christ, the church, is the fullness of Christ on earth. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. Some of you may have missed last week's Bible study, so let me just take you there real quick. It says, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. So the real church is the body of Christ. And it's also the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let me break this down deeper. Christ is the one who fills all in all. And Christ is the head of the church. But we as believers, as the body of Christ, it says we are the fullness of Christ here on this earth. So it makes perfect sense that we are commanded to be imitators of Christ as we are children of God. I realize that this is a lot to take in, but this is all tying back into our royal heritage in Christ that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. We've been called to a high calling, friends. We are to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. James 1.22 We have to train in the word, and as we learn it, we have to live it. We're not just wanting to look like fighters or sound like fighters. We have to be ready for battle at all times as we are living in a spiritual war zone 24 hours a day. As a Christian, you never exit the fighting ring. Now in closing, I want to talk about your works. These are your behaviors, your actions, your deeds. 
As imitators of Christ, your works will line up with the heart and character of Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important that we strive to be imitators of the King of Kings. None of us are going to be perfect all the time, but we have the ability to be like Christ in all that we think, in all that we say, and in all that we do. If this weren't so, then the Bible would not have commanded it of us. Did you know that there will come a day when your works will pass through a trial of fire? Just like precious metals, your works are going to pass through a test of fire, and every bad work will burn up. And the only things that will pass through the fire are your righteous works that have been done through faithful living unto God. You see, with gold and silver, there's a substance called dross that gets separated from the precious metals when they enter into the refiner's fire. Dross is the waste. It's unusable. And when the metals pass through the fire, the dross gets burned up. And when your works pass through that fire of judgment, every work that was not honoring unto the Lord is going to be burned up just like the dross. As imitators of Christ, we can now walk in purity. We can stop adding those works of dross, those worldly, sinful works into our soul's collection. We don't have to keep adding them. We can stop. We can start walking in purity, ladies and gentlemen. We have the perfect example who will guide us in every way and in every need. And that example is the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. He has given us His Holy Spirit to guide us in understanding His Holy Word and also to empower us in living a fulfilled life of godliness and righteousness unto Him so that on that great day, we will have pure and holy works that will pass through the fire and that will be rewarded in eternity. And most importantly, for the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our God who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is He. And He will only accept those righteous works that are done as we imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to just take a moment and thank God for His holy ways that are far above our ways. Thank Him for making His Word known to us, preserving it through the ages, that we might live as imitators of Christ. Ask Him to guide you with the drive and the ambition to search out the Scriptures daily and to provide you with the power to live and train for His high calling on your life. Pray that you would be given opportunities to imitate Christ in all that you do. Pray for the mind of Christ so you can operate as biblical warriors of the Most High God. And as always, I encourage you to pray for wisdom and discernment as you grow each day in the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus Christ Yeshua. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm 
and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, and shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show, and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Mm-hmm.